It's that time. Everything and anything basketball. Presented by The Outrage. With Cajun Furitani Castleman and host Spencer Byers. This is Polar Opposites. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 16. I think this might be the last time I say it, Cajun, because the first day of going to two a week, and I know we posted yesterday, so this technically is more than two a week, but actual Polar Opposites episodes, two a week, today and then Thursday. We'll be back on Thursday for other regularly scheduled programming of Polar Opposites. We still got a debate on Wednesday if we do the, the second game of the WNBA Finals between Liberty and the Aces, just like we did yesterday. But in spite of that, in spite of that, we'll keep moving. So we will talk about, obviously, the WNBA Game 1, the Aces, Blow out the Liberty in the end, 99-82. Close game in the first half, not so much in the second half. WNBA, expand to Golden State. They will be having a new team next year. I know Toronto's been kind of bubbling for a team. Some other locations you and I can talk about where we think teams will come next in the WNBA as it continues to expand. Obviously, the NBA preseason is underway. It's going to continue. You know, the Celtics look really good. Some really big contributors of the starting lineup because the real guys played unlike their opponent, the Sixers. We'll get into that. And then to end the show, a Philadelphia 76ers star has committed to playing for the U.S. national team if he is selected, which I will go as far as to say, yes, he will be selected. And if you didn't hear the news, I will break it at the very end of the show. Because it'll be our last five or ten minutes or so. We'll talk about this star player for the Philadelphia 76ers at this point. At this point. But, Cage, I think we have to start with the game yesterday. Aces, Liberty, game one. The Liberty played a great first half at 49 points. We're up by three going into the third quarter. And then from basically the moment the third quarter started, it felt like the game just got away from them. Is that the way you thought it went? Is that the way you remember it after a day of kind of downloading that? that game um yeah um and i said this to you yesterday too the first half was kind of as a basketball fan what we expected the second half team wise scheme wise chemistry wise was what we should have expected and that's the better more the more cohesive team that's been there at the biggest stage and done that together now like now the Liberty have players that have been there, been on the biggest stage, but not together, but not together as a team. With Brianna Stewart, Courtney Vandersloot, and John Quill Jones. The Aces with Plum, Young, Kelsey Plum, Jackie Young, Chelsea Gray, and Asia Wilson. They've been on the biggest stage last season, and they've won at the biggest stage, which was last season. And that showed in the second and that showed in the second half when they not only locked down defensively, but he also got easy baskets. Wilson and Young really had it going in that in that third third quarter. And even the bat and and even the Aces backcourt outscoring 
the Liberty backcourt, 72 to 28. Young and Plum with 26 each. Chelsea Gray on her 31st birthday, 20 points, six rebounds, nine assists with three turnovers. They played like the better team. They played like the better, more cohesive team. Um, and it remains to be seen. And, and now the Liberty have some adjustments to make because the Aces were content to just let Courtney Vandersloot beat them by going underneath the screen. And she didn't couldn't make them pay. But she did make some shots late in that game. So, like, maybe a confidence boost heading into game two. I want to mention this occasion. So, quickly again, I'm re-looking at the statute to reacclimate myself. The Aces had four players attempt a three. Jackie Young, Kelsey Plum, Chelsea Gray, and Alicia Clark. Of those three players, Clark went 0 for 2. Gray went 3 for 5. Kelsey went 1 for 7. Jackie Young went 5 for 8 with a career high in the playoffs 26. Plum matched that at 26. Now... Going back to the Liberty, so I say, and you heard that, four players attempted a three. On the Liberty side, their entire starting lineup plus two, their two main bench players attempted a three. That means all seven players that made actual minutes in the game attempted a three. And they go as follows. Laney 0 for 3, Brianna Stewart 1 for 4, John Quill Jones 0 for 3, Sabrina Inescu 1 for 5, Courtney Vandersloot 2 for 5, uh, Maureen Johannes, four for seven, and then Kayla Thor- uh, Thornton, one for two. So I think that's the problem right there, is the Liberty were settling too much on the outside, not forcing the issue at the rim, A. And B, when the three-point champion, 37 out of 40 possible points of the three-point contest, Sabrina Inescu goes one for five from three, it has seven points total. They're not, they're, you're not going to win that game, in my opinion. Cordy Vandersloot, we, t- we talked about it during the stream, or I'll say during the, during the, um, during the live reactions. It didn't look good till probably the fourth quarter. She went, I think, one for eight, seven or one for eight at one point on the field. She ended four for 11. So that's a problem. You know, Brianna Stewart wasn't efficient. She got her 21, but she only fought, shot 42% from the field. So... The Liberty had the perfect start with Johannes hitting those ridiculous shots, having 14, which led her team at the half. Johannes didn't have another point the rest of the game. She basically played the same amount of minutes in the first half as she did in the second half. 10 minutes in the first half, about 10 minutes in the second half, 9.51 to be exact. Johannes didn't score another basket in the second half, and that really slanted it in favor of the Aces because... All of their starting lineup showed up as, again, you heard Plum and, and Young had 26, 19 for Aja Wilson, 20 for Chelsea Gray. And, and I, I think, know the broad, oh, go ahead. And I think, um, and I think the reason, reasoning behind that was like, it wasn't because she was jacking them up and missing them. She never even had a chance to shoot because the Aces, I think the Liberal, I think the Liberty were kind of going about it like, okay, she's going off. It'll open up the floor for the rest of us. They can't leave her. They got to keep one guy, a, a, one person on her. But they doubled her the minute she got the ball, and it kind of disrupted their offensive flow. And um, it does not help when you have the reigning three-point champion, Sabrina Yanis. 
Eskew go one for five and have from downtown and have seven points. It doesn't have it doesn't help when Vandersloot can't make open shots. It doesn't help when John Quell Jones scores just two points in the second half. Everything that could have went wrong for the Liberty offensively did. And there was no there was no diversity. There was no offensive diversity to kind of make up for it. And it turned into a snowball effect and combined with the fact that they were very sloppy with the ball in the second half. And the Liberty were very sloppy with the ball offensively in the second half. And um, uh, the Aces got whatever they wanted in that second half. Um, it became it turned into disaster. And I, I agree with you there, Cage. But now, again, looking at that second half, which, again, was the big jump for the Aces. They scored. They outscored the Liberty 10 points in both the third and the fourth quarter, 26-16, 27-17, 26 points third quarter, 27 points fourth quarter. And they, again, basically dominated from the moment the third quarter started. You kind of felt like the game got away from New York. Cage, if you had to pinpoint one thing, or maybe two things, but more one thing, the Liberty need to do better as a team, not singling out Vander Sluter and asking you who have to play better. That's obvious. If they, if the guard play is 72, 28 points wise, and that's a genuine stat they showed on the broadcast, 72 points were scored between the guards of the aces, while 28 was scored between the guards of the Liberty. If that happens again, the Liberty are not going to win a game in this series. That's just, just a reality. And as I said, on the, the, the streams, and I will say it here, if the Aces sweep the Liberty in Las Vegas, the Liberty will not get back to Vegas for five. They will not win two in Brooklyn. I have zero doubt about that. I am confident in that prediction. I'm willing to change because I'm not you. I'm not picking Connecticut in this series. I have faith that if the Las Vegas Aces take care of business at Modelo, they're going to win this series in New York, which sucks for their home fans, but I don't think we'll have the traveling Aces fans going to New York to watch that game, to watch three or four. Actually, with how much day, how many days are, 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 are apart, but regardless, Gage, back to the question. What do you think is one thing that New York Liberty have to change going into game two to take one in Las Vegas? Well, first of all, you didn't have to bring up the Connecticut thing. I'm like, come on. But I'm glad that you did bring it up at one point because Liberty have been in this situation before. Obviously a different opponent in the Aces. But they've been punched in the mouth before, at home nonetheless. And in game one of the semifinals against the Connecticut Sun, when Connecticut beat them by 15. But give them credit, and they, uh, but give them credit, they won three straight after that. So if there's any team that can make adjustments, and if there's any coach that's proven to make make adjustments at the biggest at at. <laughs> At the brightest, at the biggest stage, it's Sandy Brandello. Um, but this is a different animal in the in the Las Vegas Aces. Uh, they're cohesive. They've been there. They've won it all. The one thing that I think they need to do, or t- actually two, two, establish a defensive presence on the inside. Because game two of the semifinals, you got to give Brianna Stewart credit. Didn't really score a lot against Connecticut in game two, but really made her presence felt on the defensive end with five blocks. She's got to do the same. 
She's got to do this. She's got. She's got. She's got to focus on the defensive side of the ball. She's got to focus on the defensive side of the ball and deter guards from attacking the rim. Stop those backdoor cuts because there there were a ton of there were a ton of passing lanes that were there were a ton of backdoor cuts and Chelsea Gray basically feasted on them by finding Jackie Young, Kelsey Plum, Asia uh, and Kelsey Plum and Jackie Young for easy easy layups, especially in that fourth quarter. Another thing, establish your presence on the inside. You got John Quill Jones, you got Brianna Stewart. Eat on the inside. That worked in the first half for John Quill Jones, and they kind of went away from that in the second half. So, and aside from Asia Wilson, they don't have that much size after Asia Wilson and Stokes. So, establish your presence on the inside on both ends of the floor. And maybe just maybe you might steal one in Las Vegas and make the series interesting. And one other thing to mention before we move on from the WNBA finals, again, Aces beating Liberty 92, 99-82. One thing you'd say for Vegas before we, again, move on. If there's one thing you think the Vegas Aces need to improve to win game two in Vegas to force it to a third and maybe final game in New York, what would you say that one thing was? Because I'm not going to say the Vegas had a flawless performance because I don't think they did. I think there's a lot of things that they needed to fix in the first half, which they did in the second half. But now you have to look at the next game and go, okay, we, that, we can't start like that. We can't start where we're down going into halftime because next time the Liberty aren't going to give us the chance to come back because they're going to know, right? And again, we can't expect Inescu to have seven points again. We can't expect Vandersloot to have 10 points again and wait to the fourth quarter to make a shot. You know? You got to expect Brianna Stewart to be more efficient as this series goes on. So if there's one thing you think the Vegas Aces need to improve for game two, what would it be? Play physical. And they did that for the second half, but play physical for 40 minutes. Make... UNESCO, Brianna Stewart, John Quill Jones, Courtney Vandersloot. They gotta feel the they gotta feel that physicality. That happens for like 40 minutes, or maybe even the first three quarters. This game is gonna be a laughter. This game this game is going to this game is going to be the la- be a laughter because physicality wise, I think that favors the aces a lot more. Because they're more defensive. Uh, um because of the defensive prowess that they have. I definitely agree with you there, Cage, that physicality for the Aces, especially on the inside, forcing the Liberty to to take those three-pointers that they were not able to cash. But in fairness to both teams, they are very good three-point shooting teams. They're good at making threes. Both teams are top one and two, and I think the Liberty are two and three and three-pointers made in three-point percentage, but they're both, you know, right there for three-point percentage and three-point makes. So that is something both these teams are good at. It's just, I think the Liberty, too many players settled for threes. Too many. Like, I'm sorry, seven of, if all seven of your starters, all seven of the players that played significant minutes take a three, 
that is too many. That is just too many. Because I don't think you can reliably say, Cage, honestly, and I think it's in the NBA as well, even though the NBA has definitely gone to this more of a style, style choice, there's not that many shooters that should be taking that shot. There just isn't. So I think Liberty need to focus more on what players should be taking those shots, what players shouldn't be taking those shots, and how to maximize. Like, Inescu should take that shot. She didn't make them. Hopefully she can improve that for game two. They have quite a few days off. Again, Wednesday the 11th, coming up a couple days now, a couple days time now, we'll have game two of back in Vegas. So um, I think I think forcing the issue at the rim is also something the Liberty really need to focus on going into game two. And I think and I think um, Marine Johan is knocking down those four threes in the first half in that sort of fashion, which I know with for you as a basketball coach, it'll just make you pull whatever hair you have out. Um, um, but I think that was the worst possible thing that could have happened to the Liberty. Cause it's like, okay, you saw, you, you've seen some crazy threes fall like, and they're a three point shooting team. It's like, let's let it fly from behind the arc. That's not always going to be the case. That's not going to go in for the entirety of the game. And credit the aces. And you said this first, let her take those shots play the percentages. And we'll, we'll get back into this game. And, the Liberty have to work inside out. Establish the presence on the inside. If they're not going to stop the inside, attack him. John Quill Jones got to be like, nobody can guard me. I'm going to go up to the rim and say barbecue chicken every time. Brianna Stewart has to get her work done on the inside and from the free throw line in. Then that'll open shoot. Then, then that'll open up lanes for the shooter. Then that'll open up shots for the shooters. For Vandersloot, for Unescu, there's going to be more space. You just got to drive. Use your use your size to your advantage, and I don't th- I don't think the Liberty did that for stretches of that game, especially in the second half. And just before again we move on, October 11th, as I said, couple days time, Liberty Aces back in Vegas for Game Two. We'll see if Liberty can push it back to New York tied 1-1 or if they got to go back home needing both in New York to force a game five. But um, another thing to mention, just again, I mean, just before we move on, Cage, Marine Johannes, 14 points, hit those absolutely miraculous shots. Do you look at that as an anomaly, just quick, or as just a... She she can make those once in a while, but we're going to, as I said on the stream, percentages play out, and we're going to let her take those shots because she hits a couple, she hits a couple, but majority she is going to miss. Well, it was said on the broadcast that she she actually practices those shots, which kind of blew my mind (laughs) with the the degree of difficulty on those those, um, threes that she made. But you just got to put a body on her. You just got to put a body on her and play the percentages. Because she can make she can make them if a defender's trailing. But if a defender's right on her and contesting, not late contest, but contesting, like, at the, at, like contesting her sight, I don't think that should be, an, it should be an issue. Now, she has done this before in the Commissioner's Cup when she knocked down five threes against the Aces. Um, actually led the team in scoring. Um, 
for that game. But you can't expect that to last. You can't expect you can't expect it to last. And based off of her playoff performance in which she went one of ten from behind the arc before that performance. You just gotta make her uncomfortable and like make sure she doesn't get a shot off. Because the minute she gets a shot off, the minute you see one three go down, it's an issue. It's an issue. So I think the aces are well aware of the sort of three point prowess that Johannes can provide provide. So I expect them to make sure she doesn't get a shot off at any cost and um, make make life more difficult for Vandersloot and UNESCO to try to make up for it. And we'll see if the Liberty, again, can make their way back or if the Aces are going to go for a two-peat for the first time since 0102 and the Los Angeles Sparks. But before we move on to the NBA, as we said, expansion will continue in the WNBA. The newest team going is the is Golden State. They will be receiving a team. They will be moving to San Francisco, just like where the Golden State Warriors are. So it'll be another team in the Bay Area. So a rival to Los Los Angeles. And they obviously don't have a name for the team yet. But it looks like they'll be also adding one more team by 2025. They'd like to add one more team before 2025 to get them to an even 14. And I assume a 7-7. Seven and seven. So if this is a Western Conference team, then they expect that extra team would go in the East unless they get another West Coast team and move a team to the East. So, Cage, what do you think of a team going to the, the Bay? And then secondly, and we'll, we'll repeat it if you forget it just in case. I know I'm double, bar- double barreling you here. Where is next for the WNBA? Where is the next Eastern specifically? Because if they want to even out the conferences, you got to go East now for the from the West. So where do you think the next team's going to go in the WNBA well, expansion? To kind of answer that question, um, to kind of answer that question, um, apparently, according to a report from CBS Sports from Jack Maloney, <coughs> excuse me. Apparently, there might be a there might be a new expansion team starting in Portland, and that is close to a done deal. And then an announcement is going to come before the end of the month. Um, now Portland has a strong has a strong fan base in terms of basketball, the Oregon area. Um. And I think that might have to do with um, Toronto no longer being in the running. Um, one, logistics. Logistics with like, and I think I was hearing about like Scotiabank Arena, like with concerts, but also the bigger issue is like charter flights. There'll be a nightmare going through customs back and forth with the with the travel policy that the WNBA has. Um, but in terms of like the WNBA going to Golden State, I'm all for it. And 
the guys on the Warriors squad have been champ championing the championing the women's game for years. Steph Curry being one of them, like uh he's had numerous interactions with Sabrina Unescu, Draymond Green, Steve Kerr. They've they've been a staunch supporter of the women's game for years. And um I think this is gonna bring this is going to bring a whole new fan this is gonna bring a whole new crowd to the WNBA that we haven't seen before. As they going going off of the Warriors players supporting is supporting the WNBA and women's basketball in the first place. So I think this is a great thing for the game. And um Portland getting a team, they got a great fan base. Portland expecting to getting getting an get an expansion team. They got a great fan base in the first place too. Um, they got a loyal fan base in Portland. So, I think this is at the end of the day, this is going to be great for. This is going to be great for the game of women's basketball. Now, I mentioned Toronto. Now, I mentioned Toronto. The WNBA game that uh, that happened. I want to believe this was during preseason action at Scotiabank Arena. It was. Um, great crowd. But charter flights, and I think until that, and and like the sort of logistical nightmare that will happen if they keep going back and forth from customs to like Toronto, or like teams going in and out of Toronto. Until they have a policy that, until the, their travel policy is in place that um, there's no issues going in and out of Canada, I don't think we're going to see a WNBA team in Toronto any team in Toronto anytime soon. Another thing to add about Toronto's logistical problem with the WNBA team is I've also heard the problem is they want the team to play at Scotiabank Arena where the Leafs play and the Raptors play, but. Toronto doesn't want that because of the concerts they will lose during the summer. So they don't know if they'll make enough money to make the offset work. And I'm not saying that that's right or wrong. I'm just going to say that if they don't play at Scotiabank, they probably won't be playing an actual Toronto because, you know, like the, the uh, Toronto Rock now playing Hamilton um, obviously, if the OHL teams in so- Mississauga, the Hamilton Bulldogs just moved to Brantford. Um, you also have the Oshawa Generals in the OHL. You know, you had the Brampton Battalion who moved, obviously, to North Bay. So, like, there's lots of areas to put a team here in the GTA. But the problem is, is there a space the WNBA is going to like that is not Scotiabank Arena? Because I think the answer to that is no. I think it's a resounding no. They want them at the big building. I just don't think Toronto or MLSE, well, I'm not going to say own Scotia, but I know they are big components of Scotia because they own the Leafs and the Raptors and et cetera. I don't think MLSE is going to want a team in there taking away from actual revenue if the team's not going to make any money. And it remains to be seen if that team would make money. So mm-hmm. I think the MLSE is also going to wait to see if the WNBA can turn a profit. Because once the WNBA turns a profit as an organization, that is going to really Chase. propel expansion because then locations are actually going to see it as a viable business more than just a league that people want to endorse. 
because you and I talk about it because we want to endorse it as small as our fan base is. But the reality is it doesn't make any money and they need to start making money. They need to get out from under the w, the NBA shadow and the money the, w, the NBA gives them, which is public record. The NBA does pay the WNBA a sizable percentage. I think it's seven in the in the ballpark of seventy million dollars. So it's not chump change. Yeah, but once the WNBA can do that, and if, if that's through expansion and adding teams in in better locations and having a higher product. And that's, again, where you and I talked about yesterday with, with the game, is we really, really hope that this finals propels the women's game because it is two great teams with some great players, five MVPs involved, five either reigning or former MVPs, six if Candace Parker does make her return. I don't think she will, but she is there in the stands. We saw her yesterday on the bench with Las Vegas Aces. So where hopefully this will help. Wearing a questionable fit at that. Wearing a questionable fit at that. I, I, I can agree with that. So <laughs> we'll see as, you know, the days go on, how many more teams they add. But I want to know another location. So you said Portland, and obviously they're moving to Golden State. You mentioned how Toronto logistically can't handle a WNBA team right now, but probably will get one soon. I think Vancouver could probably handle a WNBA team. I don't think they're going to go there soon. I don't think they'll go there soon, but I think I think Vancouver could, because I Montreal could, but I feel like I feel like Quebec is the province I would stay away from, just because Quebec is hardcore fans. You have to be good. You cannot go to Quebec and suck. You can't. Vancouver, I think you can. I don't think Mm -hmm. you can't do that in Montreal or, or Quebec City, but I think in Vancouver you probably could. But moving back across the across the board down south. Before, I think before. what? Bless you again, by the way. Thank you. Um, before I go into that, and I think like we bring up the topic of like logistics and like concerts. Concerts, and they don't want to take away the revenue from concerts. The issue is like change, changing up like like because it's a process like changing up like. The ve- like rebuilding the venue from like from a court to like a concert and then back to a court. So with the WNBA schedule and concerts, that's going to be tough for Scotiabank Arena to handle at the same time. Exactly. Um, so something's got to be figured out about this. Something's got to be figured out about that. And it's unfortunate that um like logistically it's just like right now it isn't working out because the WNBA is like hell-bent on making sure this is at Scotiabank Arena, but it's not really possible at the, at the moment. But it is sort of a blessing in disguise that this isn't happening right now because we it can kind of... The grass... Women's basketball growing at a grassroots level in the city of Toronto and Canada, we've talked about Hoop Queens before. That'll be put in the spotlight more and like... More attention will be brought. I would hope that more attention would be brought to that. And yeah, like I can't wait for that to. I can't wait for not only for that to grow because that is going to grow, but for people to actually pay attention to it. Not only that, Kh, you're actually. I think you told me hosting an event later this this. Um, I'll say this week, but you know, in this month for Hoop Queens. So we'll talk about that as their season gets started up. 
Mm-hmm. But another thing I want to mention here is we talked about expansion. I'm going to give my teams quick, and then we're going to move on to the preseason of the NBA. Lots of stuff has happened so far. Um, and we'll probably do my scrabble board between that too as well. But quick, before we do that, before I lose my train of thought, right now there are 12 teams in the WNBA, six and six, six in the East, six in the West. There's also, obviously, as you heard, Golden State being added and Portland could be added. If those teams are added, in my opinion, what I think the WNBA should do as a team, as a league that knows that they are not the 1A or top four league or, or whatever, right? I think they should look at or look at locations that don't have professional teams or have like one professional team. I think Oklahoma City could support a WNBA team with the Thunder. I think moving to college towns kind of will help the pro uh, help the product think about a WNBA team in Birmingham Alabama or Tuscaloosa where the Alabama Crimson Tide play the only yeah. product in Alabama would be the WNBA and obviously the college teams if you go to and I'm trying to think of other big um cities I'm thinking if you don't, uh, don't go to Portland go to Eugene go play where the Oregon Ducks play the Oregon Ducks have a great women's program and a great men's program we know Oregon can support a team go to Eugene don't go to Portland where the rock where the where the um where the uh WHL team plays. Don't go where the Trailblazers play. Go to Eugene. Go be the only product in a city. If you're the only dog there, people are going to go. Obviously, yeah, you have to be good relatively because people don't want to see a team be be bad. But if you go to places where there aren't other major teams, you're not fighting other things to be on the 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 docket for things to see, right? That's why the NHL is looking at Utah right now because all they have is basketball. And if you had an NHL team there, that means you only have two things that need attention. There's not a football, or I guess they have a, they have, they have the um, I believe my brain's now trying to play through my head the the other major sports. But regardless, if hockey goes there, it will draw in in Utah if they go to Salt Lake. So I want to see the WNBA go to places that don't have major sports teams in other leagues to be able to claim, have a claim, in my opinion. Kind of like how Columbus doesn't have a whole lot of sport. Like, the, it's so weird that, like, Ohio has Columbus, Cincinnati, and Cleveland, and they all have major sports teams. All the different, obviously, levels and, and success, but still. And obviously, they have the college teams like Ohio State plays in Columbus in, in Ohio. But that's what I want to see. So put a team in Birmingham or Tuscaloosa. Put a team in Oklahoma City. Put a team, I'm trying to think, maybe if you want to put a team, other team in Texas, don't go Dallas. Don't go Dallas or Houston. Go Fort Worth. Austin? Go Austin. Go to a place where there isn't anything else to fight with. There's not another thing trying to take away from your audience. You're the only dog at the bowl. Don't try to go where everybody else has gone because you will not draw if the NBA is in town, if the NHL team's in town. You know, if you go to Florida, you don't go to Miami or Orlando. You don't, you don't go to, or you know, there's Miami, there's Orlando, there's Tampa. Go to uh, Tallahassee where the Florida State uh, Seminoles play. Lots of lots of stuff going on in Florida. Lots of big places in Florida. Pick and a location say, where you're not fighting other things. Is all I'm trying I to say. Gonna, I was gonna say one other place. Like now, 
with um before I lose my train of thought. Now that like Caitlin Clark being there kind of adds a whole lot of intrigue to women's basketball, Iowa. That's another, yeah, exactly. That that's the thing is I want to see them put teams where no other team is or one other team is like Oklahoma City. You know, because again, you know, that's what the XFL is trying to do, or you know, vice versa. I can't remember the other football league they're merging with the XFL. But that's the thing for me is if you put teams where you don't have other competition, you should be able to draw because you're the only dog at the bowl. So I'm really hoping the WNBA takes that and runs with it. Because I'm not saying don't go to major markets like New York, like L.A., Chicago, etc. I'm saying once you get those main building blocks of L.A., of San Francisco, of New York, go to other locations where you're the only major team there. And then you'll garner a fan base. Because would you rather stay at home all day? And, you know, I don't know what they do in Oklahoma, but, you know, run out of gas on the, the dirt road? Or do you think the WNBA team was really good? Or Birmingham or Tuscaloosa, where there really isn't anything else going on, especially after football season. Mm-hmm. So I just something I, I'd like to see. Yeah, for sure. Like, it'll just force to, like, yeah, in a way, it'll it'll bring crowds by force because like there's no there's no other team to cheer for. Like exactly, there's nothing else to do. Kind of like putting it, put a team in Wisconsin, put a team where the Wisconsin Badgers play. Which I'm trying to remember what the name of the town is, but regardless, put a team there. Why? Because the only major team in Wisconsin is Green Bay, the Packers, or the only dog, and I guess Milwaukee. But put a team, you know, don't go to Milwaukee. Go somewhere else in Wisconsin. No, I wouldn't say go to Green Bay either, but maybe go to Green Bay. Go to another place I was gonna say, you can create a base. I was going to say because their team moved out of the city, the Athletics might, the Raiders already did. Why not Oakland? Kind of, I, I think that'd be a great idea, but then but they're moving to San Francisco. Why would you put a third team in L.A.? Or is there a third team in... in, um, in uh, California? In California, because at that point, you might as well go to either Anaheim or San Jose, which only have hockey teams. Well, I guess in the Anaheim Angels, but they suck. No one cares about the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. No one even really knows they play in Anaheim. Mm. But, you know, that's the thing, is there's lots of markets in L.A. or in California you can take from. Again, California as a, as a state has more people than Canada as a country. So it's not really like like for comparison, I would say. Anyway, so... You know, I just I want to see more of it. I want to see more leagues do it, but I want to see the WNBA specifically because that's how you grow is you build core fan bases in places that don't have competition to take away the eyes like L.A. does, like Brooklyn does, like Chicago does, like Texas does in in Dallas or in Houston. Go to Fort Worth. Go to Austin. If you want to put a team in the far south, go to Amarillo. Go to El Paso. Go some go to Waco where the Baylor Bears play that have a fan base. Won a national championship not too recently with the men's team. Have had a good female program. You know, go to South Bend. Go to where Notre Dame play. Why? Because they've had a great 
program for the women's game and some, some of the men's game. The men's game is a little more, more inconsistent relative, but still go to places where you know there are fans that will come and places that no one else is to not have to fight for the eyes. Because let's be honest here, Cajun, if it's between the WNBA and the NBA, the NBA is going to win. It's between the NFL and the WNBA, the NFL is going to win. It's between the NHL and the WNBA, the NHL is going to win. So try to go to places where you're not trying to fight for those eyes. And I said, oh, I know I said Oklahoma City, which does technically fight, but it just Oklahoma City only has basketball. So keep it that way. Add to it. But anyway, before we continue this rant, we'll move on now to the Scrabble board quick. I got two names for you, Cajun. Are you ready? I got a quick explanation before we move on. Scrabble board, Cajun. Theruth, any cast of last name, 17 characters long, can't fit into work or school email, so might as well make fun of him by putting his name on the Scrabble board. Shouldn't we, Cajun? Shouldn't we? Might try that one day, Cajun. No, just, just to put it in the back of your mind. I might one day put your name in this in this Scrabble board. Just see if you can just see if you can spell it out backwards. One day, Cajun. One day. But are you ready for the first name? Yes. The first name is G-O-N-Y-U. Jackie Young. It is Jackie Young of the uh, Las Vegas Aces, who again had a career-high 26 points in the Aces win. She looking to have a great game, too, to be able to get her team a 2-0 lead in the WNBA Finals. Are you ready for name number two? Yep. And number two is C. I P T R D H A. And I believe that's all the letters. C-I- I didn't scramble them this time. C I P T R D H A? I believe so. Actually, I'll, you know what? We'll do it this way, Cajun. How many letters did I tell you? Eight. Okay, so I am missing one. Did I say D? You said C I P T R D H A. Oh, I missed another R. There's two R's. Two R's, one A, one D, C H P I T. And I'll give you the quick hit, Cajun. He has just signed a new contract. He just signed a new contract. Oh, Peyton Pritchard. It is Peyton Pritchard, former Oregon Duck, four-year starter at Oregon, well, four-year player at Oregon. Current Boston Celtics signed a new four-year, $30 million contract, and did he live up to it or what in the preseason game for the Boston Celtics? He had a team-high 26 points in a 114-106 win for the Boston Celtics over the Philadelphia 76ers. But in fairness to Philadelphia, they did not play Embiid. They did not play Harden. They did not play a lot of their main stays in the game. Boston did. Tatum played. Jalen Brown played. Chris Porzingis played. Peyton Pritchard played. Drew Holiday played. But, but Peyton Pritchard had 26 points in 23 minutes of play. He shot 9 for 14 from the field and 6 for 11 from 3. So Peyton Pritchard showing out in his first game as a Boston Celtic. Porzingis also had 17, by the way, for the Celtics in his debut. Five for seven from the field, two for three from deep. 
Porzingis added adds a different element, a whole new different element to to the Celtics that they didn't have last season. No disrespect to Al Horford, who is great, but isn't the same player that he was before. Um, and as much as you love Robert Williams, Porzingis is on another a whole another planet when it comes to offensive production. From the inside and the outside. So it adds a different wrinkle to what Boston already had. And now you got to worry. You have you have to be worried if you're opponents because you gotta you gotta end up having one-on-one coverage with Tatum and Brown worrying like with Porzingis in the fold and eventually and and Drew Holiday too. You gotta play those guys one-on-one, and that's a scary proposition. Definitely not going to be an easy matchup by any means. But now moving to the 76ers cage. They, again, didn't play Harden, didn't play Embiid. Um, Tobias Harris played. Tyrese Maxey played. Maxey had a team high 24 in the loss. Um, lots of other guys played in some action. But is I'm not going to say is it worried because I know it's just preseason. I know these games don't matter. I understand LeBron's sitting out half of the games for L.A. and he's getting old. But is it a worry that James Harden took forever to come back and now hasn't played in a preseason game and Joel Embiid's injury prone and didn't play in this game? Just for me, when the other team plays their stars, I feel like you have kind of that that inkling to play your guys and the Sixers didn't. And maybe that's Nick Nurse's plan. But I just it doesn't make it doesn't make it feels me feel uneasy, Cage. As a, as a neutral to the 76ers, I know we, we, we make fun of Joel Embiid and Nick Nurse and, and, and James Harden in fairness, because, again, we are fans of other teams in that same division. But, mm-hmm. again, looking at it as a neutral, it's a little uneasy of a feeling for me seeing Embiid sit, seeing Harden sit with all the turmoil of if Harden leaves, that mean Embiid's going to go and Harden's back in the fold, but for how long? And all these whirlwinding stories that have happened in the last three months we've covered basically since they started. So... What was what is your feeling seeing Embiid and Harden both sit out the first game of the preseason for them? Because of Embiid's nature and how he gets injury prone, I'm not too worried. It's not worrying because like Sixers had to go through so much change. Now, not in terms of like maybe personnel, but in terms of like what happened over the offseason with Harden demanding a trade and then calling Daryl Murray a liar. And us not knowing, like, every NBA fan not knowing if he was going to, like, sit out for, like, the rest of, if he was going to sit out for the rest uh, until he gets traded. But he only, the only day that he didn't go to was media day. And then went into practice and, and then attended training camp with his teammates. And there wasn't really much fanfare or media attention about it he just went about went about his business so so far so far nothing crazy has happened nothing crazy has happened and his teammates and like Harden's teammates doesn't don't seem to have an issue with this yet keyword yet it's not like the Ben Simmons situation that it was that was before he eventually got traded to Brooklyn with that being said, this better be the only time Embiid and Harden re- like 
don't play in the pre don't play in the preseason. At least play fifteen to twenty minutes a game, because it's critical to get chemistry in place. Not especially for the Sixers and a beat, but if Harden wants out, he's gonna have to prove that he can still be that elite playmaker that he is and score when needed in order to up his trade value and eventually go to a team in which he'd feel wanted. So I'm not worried about it now, but if this continues, I will be. Now I'm looking through some other preseason games that happened. I'm trying not to gush over the Detroit Pistons who I'll be honest, I have a soft spot for, but uh, I'm going to keep it moving. I'm going to use the dock here to, to kind of, to guide my way through this, the Phoenix Suns got their big three era started in a 130-126 overtime win over the Detroit Pistons. Beal, Booker, and Durant all played only 13-ish minutes total, but they still played. They still started. They were still on the floor to begin the game, and they had 12, 12 and 11, 12 points for both Booker and Durant and 11 for Bradley Beal, Beal playing shooting guard, Booker playing point guard, and KD playing small forward. Cajun, do you think that's where they're going to line up? Do you think they're going to put Booker at the one and put Beal at the two, or do you think they're going to kind of mismatch, mix and match who they put at the point guard between those two guys? I think Booker's going to be the point guard because he knows he he he's been there the longest and he kind of knows kind of knows a, he kind of knows what systems in place um, with. Now, obviously, different teammates. Uh, and a different coach. And a different coach, too. But um, he showed playmaking chops before the bubble as well. Um, and during the... And on top of that, he's had he's had Chris Paul like to lean on as a mentor before Paul eventually got traded. So... I think he's the perfect guy to be the point guard. Um, I think the scary part about this team is that, like, a guy like Yusuf Nurkic can pass two out of the center position too. Like, all four of those guys—Durant, Nurkic, Beal, Booker—they got they all can pass. They all can pass in it, and um, the three the the three stars were. Durant was a plus 14, Beal was a plus 15, and Booker was a plus six, 16. Um, the scary part is, and it's early, but their games mesh well with each other, and there's like shooting, playmaking, and maybe defense all over the floor, because Booker's been a better defender than he was early in his career. And KD is an underrated defender. It remains to be seen if Bradley Beal's up to that task and if he steps up defensively. But Suns fans have to be happy. And I know you mentioned Detroit. And Detroit, Detroit's got to be happy too because one, Cunningham's back. Jaden Ivey looked like he looked like he... um. Looks like he's gonna pick up right where he left off. Killian Hayes even had some had showed some playmaking chops and some defense with five steals. And then Marvin Bagley showed a little bit of something with twenty five off of the bench too and a plus, and almost a team high plus nineteen. So 
not only are things looking good in Phoenix, things are on the come up in Detroit as well. And Osser Thompson really stuffed the stat. Sh- oh, sorry, Osser Thompson, excuse me. Uh, really stuffed the stat sheet. Didn't really shoot the ball particularly well, but had 10 rebounds and six assists. Things are looking good in Detroit. Cashin, you shouldn't have done this. You shouldn't, you shouldn't have done this because I love basically all of this Detroit team. Like, all of them. I love Jalen Duran, the youngest player in the NBA last year. I love uh, Oscar Thompson, who had, as you mentioned, 12, 10, and 6. In 38 minutes of play in a preseason game. He played all but 10 minutes of an NBA preseason game. Kate Cunningham played his first game back since his injury last year, 12.6 uh, assists. Um, I'm not a, I'm not the biggest fan of Isaiah Stewart because I think there's guys below him that are better, but I like him as a player. Liked him at Washington when he was a Husky. Um, Alec Burke is the Alec Burks is the one guy who's definitely not going to play for this team because then you got Jaden Ivey, who I love out of Purdue, Marvin Bagley, who I still think the world of and think has potential. It's just injuries have really taken away from his career. Killian Hayes, who I really like, had 13.7 assists and as you mentioned, five steals. James Wiseman, who barely played. Who had uh, 4.7 rebounds? He's hopefully gonna have a resurgence in Detroit. Uh, Marcus Saucer, who played for Houston, I'm a big fan of his game as well. And he got some other guys who didn't even play, like Isaiah Livers, who formerly played for Michigan, had a great career. And if he did not get hurt before the tournament, when Michigan went with the freshman Dickerson and that team, and I can't remember some of the other more supporting cast of that Michigan team, they probably would have been in the national championship because Isaiah Livers was the best player on that team, the absolute best player on that Michigan team mm. that went to, I think it was the Elite Eight and lost because he was hurt. And Bogdan Bogdanovich didn't play. Oh, you mean Boyan? Boyan Bogdanovich. I didn't even check. I was hoping I guessed right. I picked the wrong one. It is what it is. I, I, I picked the World Cup one, not the Detroit one. But anyway, so I just, I love this entire Detroit team. Like basically every single player on it. I am a fan. And they have the right coach to lead them to and and the right motivator to lead them to in Monty Williams. And he's got he got he got the bag to do it, Cage. He got the bag. Man swimming in money. As now we're gonna quickly move to another team that one of the people in this show are fans of, and it sure is hell ain't me, but he talked about my team. It is the Toronto Raptors. The Raptors Three, win one twelve. The Raptors win 112-99 over the Sacramento Kings. Gary Trent Jr. had a team high in game high, 22 in the win. Malachi Flynn had a great stat line of five points, five rebounds, and five assists. As Scotty Barnes played shooting guard, started at shooting guard, uh, had 15.7 rebounds and four assists in only 17 minutes to play. The starting lineup for the Raptors was Schroeder, point guard, Barnes, shooting guard, Siakam, power forward, OG small forward and per uh po, uh Pertle, pardon me at center. That's a damn good starting five, and they're gonna be so good defensively. Like that yep. shooting guard, the power forward connection between Siakam, OG, and Barnes at at, at defending is gonna be disgusting. It's gonna there's be no, disgusting. There's no defensive weak link in that starting lineup. Maybe you could say Schroeder, but. He's if your point guard's your worst defender, Cajun, you can you can get rid of that. You can get away with that. Because no offense, Steph Curry, he's not a great defender. He's an okay defender. And they but, get away with it. But Schroeder showed some defensive chops in the postseason with the Lakers as well. Like 
Ed, he's quick. And he could like keep up and he could keep up laterally in terms of like lateral quickness against point guards as well. Unlike Fred Van Vliet, who not only wasn't as laterally quick, although he had great hands, but also his lack of size played against him. Um but the I loved how Scotty Barnes was aggressive. I loved how OG and Anobi was effective. Was effective in the sh- in the touches that he had. I loved how Sia- Pascal Siakam at times didn't really defend that well. But then again, it's preseason. Did got to his spots on the move and not try to create something out of nothing. And this is what I lo- and it's early and I know it's preseason, but the biggest stat here that really made my eyebrows like perk all the way up 30 assists on 39 made field goals it was said during media day that they did not want to play selfish as they did last season or at least that's what Masai said that's a pretty good start 30 points on 39 assists and you talked about Gary Trent Jr. With a game with a game high twenty two points, I believe. Yeah, game high twenty two points. He played on the fly. Like the problem with Gary Trent Jr. last year is that like he had to adjust to so many different roles. If this is the role that he is going to play, I'm I'm all for it because he's that top guy coming off of the bench, and he seems to play well in the. System that Darko Ryakovich has has implemented, which is basically read and react. Um, like the set, like there were some there were some like hiccups along the way, but it's preseason. You gotta expect that. And then Grady Dick was wasn't shy about letting the ball fly from behind the or from like anywhere. Um. There was just more. There was just more. Di- there was just a lot more diversity to their offense. People played in different roles. There were different sets. You talked about the starters, but I think I'm going to fall. In, I think their bench is going to be a big factor for for a good reason. Because then you got Boucher. I really like what what um Jalen McDaniel's provided. His jump shot looks pretty. He's going to be a defensive menace. Had 11 points in 16 minutes. There's there's a lot more depth on this Raptors team that that than people think. Well, you want and, to talk about that? Yeah, okay, wait, Tajin. Um, and there are going to be some growing pains because you're playing in a new system. Players are playing different roles. A, st- a main stalwart that was with the Raptors for so long is no longer there in Fred Van Vliet. So there's the adjustment of having Dennis Schroeder. Uh, there's going to be an adjustment process with Dennis Schroeder as the starting point guard and a new coach. But man, this first game, I liked what I saw. I liked what I I liked what I seen in terms of like the ball didn't really stick, and I think that's the biggest key. Well, you want to talk about a team trying new roles. The Golden State Warriors played a lineup. This was their starting lineup for the first 
play our first preseason games weren't last night. They were the night before, or I guess not, not before. They were on the seventh. So it actually was yesterday or two days ago. Pardon me. Yesterday of yesterday. So two days ago when the Lakers played the Golden State Warriors and LeBron sat out. Golden State won 125-108. And their starting lineup for the game was Chris Paul at the one, Steph Curry at the two, Andrew Wiggins at the three. Huh, where's Clay Thompson? Oh, Clay Thompson's playing the four, and Kevon Looney's playing the five. Now, I don't know if Steve oh, Kerr is going to do that. Or Wiggins is playing the four, and Clay's playing the three? No, no, no. Wiggins is playing the three, and Thompson's playing the four. Huh. That's what I thought. Sikajan. Before we move on to the rookies and their bench, because I'll quickly say Kaminga led the team with 24 points, eight rebounds, and four assists. Oh, my goodness. Moses Moody had 15 points. Uh, their most recent uh, draft pick, uh, Brandon Pods- uh, Podzimski out of Santa Clara, he had 11 points in the win. So, again, lots of good performances there. He had 11, 6, and 4. Six rebounds, four assists, one steal, one block as well. But what do you think of that Paul Curry, Wiggins, Thompson, Looney lineup? I mean, it's odd when at first glance, but there's two reasons why I think that kind of sort of makes sense. One, Draymond Green's out with an ankle sprain, and it remains to be seen if he even starts off the season. Or he might, or if he comes back, like maybe in November. That's the that's the one issue. Secondly, without LeBron and the Lakers lineup, um, their lineup was as follows: Gabe Vincent, D'Angelo Russell. So that lineup's already small enough as it is. Rui Hachimura at the three, or or four, and then Jared Vanderbilt. Ooh, isn't really known as an offensive. Maestro. He's more so more or less so known for his defense and his offense. So when you look at this lineup that the Warriors provide the Warriors came out with and the Lakers lineup, that kind of makes sense. That kind of makes sense. And I think with Draymond out, it forced Chris Paul to that starting lineup and for Paul and Curry to play alongside one another. And it and now they all played relatively not a lot. 13 minutes. Only Wiggins played 14. But Chris Paul looked good in 13 minutes. Five assists, two turnovers, six points. Steph Curry, eight points. Clay Thompson at 10. I'm really excited about what Kaminga is going to provide. Is he going to have a, if he has a bigger role and this is the type of production that he has, Golden State's ceiling goes up three stories. I oh, think that's going to I go think ahead. that's going to be the key. Kaminga and Moody. Can they take that next step? And if they can take that next step, Golden State is going to be a lot more dangerous. Definitely have to agree with that. Now, before we move on to our last topic about uh the Philadelphia 76ers player joining the they're committing to team USA for the 2024 Paris Olympics which rookie do you think had the best preseason so far best game or, or best couple of games cuz i have a i have a name that i don't know if you'll say and i have a second name if you do say him so who would you say and i and i'm not sure if you mean rookie as in cuz it's in your it's in the document 
if you mean rookie is in like just couple years in the league or like actual just drafted rookie actual just drafted well then this is gonna make it even more interesting who would you say has been the best fresh draft pick to play in the preseason so far again only three days of games so not a whole lot of games we've seen but so far what have you what have you liked who have you liked Mm. well for one author thompson really showed something Stuffing the stat sheet with 12, 10, and 6. And just playing. Just not only not only stuffing the stat sheet, but playing 39 minutes, as you said. But Jarese Walker from Indiana. Offense was going to be sort of somewhat of an issue, uh, somewhat of a issue for him, but he performed a lot better than people th- than offensively than people thought. Nineteen points, nine rebounds, four assists off of the bench, two steals, one block, four of nine from behind the arc too. If he, if his offensive game is further along than people expect, Indiana is going to be even more scary. Team, you and I love getting a little bit better. Who, who hates that, Cage? Who hates that? A um, couple other names I want to mention. I mentioned Brandon Podzinski from Golden State. He had a good shooting day, 11 points, six rebounds, four assists, as I said. He shot five for 11 from three and hit his hit one of his two threes that he attempted. Um, I also want to mention Derek Lively for uh, Dallas. He has not had a whole lot of points in the preseason, but... He's averaging two blocks in those two games. He had three blocks in game two against Minnesota. He had one block in game one against Minnesota. Lots of fouls. Didn't shoot a whole lot. Took four attempts. Made two. So shooting 50% from the field. Had five and four rebounds. So four, averaging four and a half rebounds a game. I he, They said throughout camp that, and I believe it, their head coaches, Jason Kidd, as we've gone through the, all the head coaches, yep. Jason Kidd said that Lively will have every opportunity to win the center job. I think he will. I think his defensive acumen is so good that kid will start him just to be a rim protector and the offensive game will come. So I, I've liked Lively so far for the Mavericks. And one other that I'm quickly going to scan through some other teams just to see if there's anybody else that needs a mention. The Boston Celtics rookie Walsh has not played yet. He did not play in that game. Um, I'm just quickly going through a couple other games. One one thing that doesn't surprise me, actually. Ooh, maybe. You know what? I'll, I'll mention him. I, I think my last mention here, Cage, even though he didn't shoot well, he was kind of inefficient at his college team, was Baylor Bear, Keontae Johnson. Johnson had 10 points, two rebounds, five assists, two steals, and a block. Or actually, wait, pardon me before I missed that line. Had 10 points, two rebounds, five five assists with one block was his final stat line. And he's kind of inefficient, but I think if the Utah Jazz let him develop, which I think they will because of what where they think they are, I think they know the, I think they know where they are as a team. I think Keontae Johnson could be a great scorer in the NBA, and I think that is just a taste of what he'll be able to bring. It's just consistency for him struggled at Baylor. We'll see if the consistency can iron itself out at the NBA level. Do you mean Keontae George? Oh, Keontae George, pardon me, not Keontae Johnson. I love Keontae Johnson, too, K- former K-State uh, alum. He also is in the NBA. I can't remember which team picked him up as a UDFA, but I did mean Keontae George from Baylor. That's, that is my bad. 
too many college players, too many college teams that I, I, I watch and appreciate. Which, again, we will be covering when the college season starts up, Gage, and don't you worry about that. But we'll be talking about March Madness. We'll be talking about the teams that I'm loving and I'm watching with their great teams. But now, Cage, to our final topic of the day. Yep. Joel Embiid. I'll finally say the name. Joel Embiid is committing himself to the U.S. national basketball team to play at the 2024 Olympics. Obviously, he hasn't made the team yet. He has to actually go to camp and play for a spot. But Joel Embiid has technically three teams he qualifies for. He was born in Cameroon. But he lived in France long enough. He has citizenship. So he could have played for Cameroon, France, or obviously the USA. And he picked the States, I think, obviously, for the reason of he's going to win something if he plays for them. You'd think. Most likely a gold medal, but at least a medal. But, Cage, do you think that he makes the Americans way better? Or do you just think he'll be a complimentary piece of Curry and LeBron James and KD? I think just name a few of the guys that have already committed, by the way. I think he's more so, more or less, so be a complimentary piece. Not because, because, um, as we've very well pinpointed during the FIBA World Cup, Talent doesn't always mean everything. You got to play a certain sort of style to win at the FIBA level. And I'm not sure that Embiid... I'm not sure, like, Embiid... Embiid has to play in a certain type of role to thrive. Like... No, let me rephrase this. Embiid has to adjust to a role for him him to be his most optimal self for Team USA. Because they don't need Embiid to be the MVP Embiid that he is. They need Embiid to set screens, block shots, grab rebounds, and work in the post at times. Which will be a big adjustment for him, but it's what he. But if he does end up playing for Team USA, it's what he needs to do because there's a ton of there's a ton of star power. But there's also way too many egos. So, like he's going to have to make a big adjustment. And I'm going to read this on on X about his decision process. Um. It was a family decision. Um, not like he also mentioned he wanted to play with his brothers in the league and then hit the fans because they've been incredible since the day he came. But he also played for, but he he made this decision for his son who was actually born in the USA. And he wants his son to know I played, that he played his first Olympics for him. So that was more so more or less so behind that decision. But I it his presence will make the USA better to sum things up. But I think he's going to have to he's but he's definitely gonna to have to play a different role. He's gonna go from top dog to a complimentary piece, and I'm not sure Dolan B's gonna be happy with that. 
And if you want to get gold, if you want to get gold, you gotta do what you gotta do. That's I'll, I'll be honest. As a as a Canadian as a Canadian fan, I can tell you, I don't know how the American team, how Steve Kerr, is gonna get all these guys on board. Because I'm not saying they don't want to win. I'm not saying those guys won't accept their roles. I just think you gotta. You, you, at this point, you're projecting a lot of guys with personalities that I don't think mix. Like, I'm not sure if Joel Embiid is going to be able to handle being told that you're behind LeBron, you're behind Steph Curry, you're behind Kevin Durant. I don't know if he'll like that. Um, I don't know if you said to LeBron, Curry, or KD, the vice, for the vice versa, that Embiid's over you getting the ball. He'll be the higher option. I'm just not sure that's going to work out too well for everybody. So as much as I think Steve Kerr is a great coach, we've talked about where we rank all the NBA coaches. I just don't know how Steve's going to get all these guys on board because it's going to be a task in and of itself. On the contrary, I think this is going to work because LeBron, KD, and Steph to a degree, I believe. Well, at least LeBron and KD. I think Booker as well. They played at the Olympic level before, especially LeBron and KD. Like LeBron played in. 04, KD's played in 12, 16, and 20, winning three gold medals. They know they have to play certain roles to play in the Olympics, so I don't think, like, Kerr telling him, telling them that that certain players might be above them in the pecking order, I think they know what it's like. I think they've been there, they've known what it's, what it takes to play at the FIBA level, so I don't think... In terms of those guys, you have to really worry about like what roles that they have to play, because at the end of the day, they're playing. They've played in the Olympics before. It's more or less so how's Embiid going to adjust? That's the bigger unknown. the The guys who have not played at the Olympics and have been so used to playing in starring roles for the respective teams, how are they going to adjust to pl- to be playing? More than likely smaller roles at the Olympics. That's the bigger concern here. The guys who have been there, they know what it takes. They know what it takes. They've played at the Olympics before. They know what they know what adjustments they have to make. I don't think it's going to be an issue for the guys that have been at the Olympics. It's for the guys that haven't been there yet. Well, we'll see if. Well, Joel Embiid makes the team, which I I think we all can say he will, with a resounding yes. How what his role will be, and if he can handle it mentally or physically, I guess I'll say, because again, injuries are a problem for a lot of these older guys. Not even just Embiid's older; he just had injury problems since he was back in college with Kansas. But we'll see what the American team looks like as the season goes on and more guys start committing. We'll see what the European teams look like as their guys start committing, like Giannis and Nikola Jokic and Luka Doncic and et cetera. And the Canadians, what they look like with Jamal Murray, maybe back in the fold. Um, obviously, the team that was just there with, say, Shea Gillis-Alexander, Dylan Brooks with a great, great tournament, um, Dwight Powell, Kelly Olenek. We'll see what those teams look like as this season goes on. But that'll be it here for us for episode 16 of Polar Opposites. We'll see you on Thursday for sure for our next episode of Polar Opposites. We may see you on Wednesday at 9 p.m. for the WNBA Game 2 in Las Vegas between the Aces and Liberty. Hopefully we're able to bring you that. If we're not able to, again, back to regular schedule programming on Thursday. Yep. So stay tuned Thursday 
Polar Opposites, same time, same place, here on the Outrage Inc.